Hey, it's, uh, it's good to be with you guys. Um, hope you had a good week. Um, we are wrapping up Daniel today. We're in Daniel 12. Um, it's still crazy apocalyptic, so that's going to be fun. Um, but let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for today. Um, Lord, I thank you for this change of the season. I thank you for the reminder of your goodness, um, Lord, that just comes with sunlight and uh, just knowing that you shine light in dark places, God. So we pray that your light would shine on us today, your light would shine as we get into your word, and just prepare our hearts for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so yeah, by this, I just want to follow up on something Brian said. We're having a men's breakfast, 9 a.m. April 22nd. That's a Saturday. Uh, the reason for that is to get guys together and talk about what it would look like to do like a men's ministry or men's group here at CTK Blaine. So if you want input on that, please show up, okay? So, all right, I'm going to get into the word. Uh, like I said, we're wrapping up the book of Daniel today. So I'm going to look at Daniel chapter 11 and 12. And it does deal with the end of the world. It does deal with the prophetic. Unfortunately, I asked you guys a few weeks ago, who's into biblical prophecy here? And like half of you raised your hand, which was more than what I was expecting. Uh, so I'm encouraged. I'm feeling empowered to just say all the crazy stuff and, uh, and keep going. So, um, but just to wrap up our series, we started the series in Daniel with the idea um, that life is full of uncertainty. That's where we started, uh, and we looked at Daniel and his friends um, walking through a land that was full of uncertainty and chaos. Um, they lived in a time of the exile where God's people, who had been in their land for thousands of years, were all of a sudden taken out of their land, placed in the land of a foreign power. Daniel, as a young man, goes to live in the, in, in the kingdom of Babylon, in the, in the belly of the beast, in the courts of, the, of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he was presented with uncertainty after uncertainty. Uncertainty if he'd ever, like, go home, uncertainty if, uncertainty if his faith uh, would make it, um, uncertainty if uh, he could carry on with the things, the obedient things that he felt like God was calling him to do. He was in an uncertain time. He was in an uncertain culture, um, and he was in uncertain situations. You go through the book of Daniel, and you see uh, in chapter 2, Daniel and his friends get a death sentence. And then in chapter um, 3, Daniel gets a dream. Everything's okay. In chapter 4, um, we have the fiery furnace, and Shachrat, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. That, that might be chapter 5. I don't, I, okay, I'm getting it all confused, but <laughs> chapter 6, you have the lion's den, and then after chapter 6, chapter 7 through 12 is all sorts of prophecy and visits from angels and all this stuff that we've, we've been able to, to wade through, but you also have in the middle of that a prophecy about one who would come to redeem the world called the Son of Man, Jesus. So, so it's a powerful book, and it's, I've really enjoyed my time in it. Um, but today, we really want to get back to this idea of certainty. We want to get back to this idea of certainty, because we also live in an uncertain time, in an uncertain world. We have uncertain health. Uh, we, we have uncertain, we're uncertain about how, everything from how the economy is doing to, you know, how is culture changing? How does that affect me? How does that affect my kids? What kind of world am I inviting my kids to grow up in and live in? We're filled, our lives are filled with uncertainty. 
And so if you were to examine your life at, at, at this point, could you determine what things or what thing you're placing your certainty in? Is your certainty in your faith? Is your certainty on Jesus? Or have you placed certainty in a whole lot of other stuff? You know, how much certainty do you place in getting that paycheck? <laughs> right? Every couple weeks, every month, certainly. I, you know, um, how, how much? But this is what I know through walking with Jesus, and this is the, the starting point today, is faith is a journey towards certainty with God. Faith is a journey towards certainty with God. All of us start out uncertain, and all of us cycle back to a place of uncertainty in our faith. I remember growing up in church and, and going to youth group and hearing the youth pastor share, and I was such a skeptic. I didn't believe a word of it at times. And I would cycle between doubt and faith, doubt and faith. And, and I'd look around at other Christians, and I'd be like, are Christians living any better than the rest of the world? And I would cycle between doubt and faith, and doubt and faith. And so we all have those times in our lives, and maybe you're in a time right now where you're wrestling through some uncertainty with your faith. And Jesus would invite us, God would invite us this morning to follow Daniel's lead and, and see that your relationship with God really is the only certain thing you have. Your relationship with God is the only certain thing you have. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says this. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So faith is certainty. Certainty in an uncertain world. That's faith. That's what it means to have faith. To be certain of what we hope for. To be convicted of things we can't see. And I'm here to encourage you today that that doesn't just happen instantaneously. That that trust, that faith, it grows over time. In my life, it was cycles of doubt and faith, doubt and faith. And you know what? I don't doubt God's existence anymore. I used to. I used to cycle from having faith to doubting that God was even there. And then I would, I would go through cycles of having faith and doubting that God God was there, but maybe he didn't care. And so my doubt and my faith, it just kind of cycled and, and grew over time to where now I'm still on that journey, but I feel like I have legs to stand on when it comes to faith. And so faith is certainly Jesus' work in your life, um, mainly that through him, you belong to God. Maybe, maybe you're sitting there wondering, does God care about me? Does God see me in this situation I'm in? Does he care? And that, it, that we learn that through this journey of faith. So um, the other thing that Scripture teaches us is of all the things we could place our certainty in, God is our best bet. That actually trusting in Christ is not a risky move. It's not risky. It's actually a, a really sure and stable move. Jesus teaches in Matthew uh, 7, he talks about building your house on the rock versus building your house on the sand. Do you guys remember that story? He said, anybody who, who doesn't uh, obey me, doesn't place their faith in me, they're like someone who builds their life on sand. They, build, they place their certainty on uncertain ground. And when we place our certainty on, on, on relationships, on jobs, on, on homes, on anything other than God, that's all shifting sand. 
He, what, but what does he say? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So actually, a relationship with Christ is not a journey into instability. A relationship with Christ is a journey into stability, into peace, into confidence, no matter what you face in life. You know that your house is built on the rock. And so what we see, we see that amplified in the story of Daniel because he did not have great circumstances. He did have the world against him, yet his faith was in the rock, the rock of his relationship with God. And because of that, he endured through it all. He lived under the rule of God. He lived with the purposes of God. And stability is part of our relationship with Christ. It's a fruit of that, is, is being able to stand on stable ground. No matter what comes at you, no matter what you face, your feet are on solid ground. So, with all that said, uh, we come to the end of the book. And we talked about this last week. Is This is all happening as Daniel is talking face-to-face -face with an angel. Not a hidden angel, not like a secret angel, not like touched by an angel, if you remember that show. <laughs> but like... But like a glowing eyes, like, you know, legs of bronze, like bright, shining angel. And Daniel is on the banks of the river Tigris, and all of his friends that were with him ran away because they were too afraid of this thing. And here Daniel is now. He's, he's been kind of picked up on his feet, and he's talking eye to eye uh, with this angel. And this vision that he receives it, it's, it's a scope, it, it involves a scope and a scale that matches the book of Revelation. Like it matches, it goes from, from Daniel's point in history to the end of time. And, and we're going to look at that today. And there's great consistency between what we have in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation. And what God does, if you want to know why is God showing Daniel this, we talked about stability God is showing his control over the entire future as he reveals this prophetic vision to Daniel. God doesn't just control the now. He controls all time. He knows what's going to happen. And so this vision that Daniel received, it covers the expanse of history. And we remember that Daniel is in the 6th sixth, sixth century B.C., so that's 600 years before Christ. He receives, uh, he receives this vision and it would be way too much to get in the weeds and go through the entire thing. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, I just want to break it down for you. Um, basically, he starts with Daniel's point, and he talks about four Persian kings that will arise. And then he talks about Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire, and then how that would rise quickly, and then Alexander would die, and then it would, the kingdom would be broken up into four different empires and that actually happened like what's crazy about this prophecy is like we already have seen that this has happened through history if you look at Daniel eleven three, it says then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases after he has arisen his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven that actually happened Alexander the Great, that's the, the Greek Empire. He dies at 33. His empire scatters everywhere. And what I want to I make a point of this, it can be really encouraging. I know it's like history, and I don't want this to feel like a class. Um, but it's important to see that 
the what the Bible says is true, and the, and that that when the Bible says something happened, like the, the prophecy, it's not a stretch; like it actually does happen. And we can see that even with this prophecy that was fulfilled long ago, it's very precise. And if you talk to like secular historians, they'll say this this would have had to been written w well after the fact. But the thing is, is like this is part of the Jewish canon. So we know that, that, that they believe this. At the time of Jesus, he talked about the Son of Man as the fulfillment of Daniel. That would have clicked for, like, the religious, like, authorities uh, in, the, in their heads. It's, it's not like you can go back and add addendums to very important key pieces of literature. Like, if you think about that in our context, it'd be like, who, who here knows the, the story of Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens? Right, so if... If you bought a new copy of that book and all of a sudden there was like a fourth ghost of Christmas It was like the ghost of Christmas pizza or something weird like that. You would notice, right? So So just like we can trust God's word I don't think the argument that it was written afterward doesn't make sense because this was accepted as part of the Jewish canon and then Jesus talked about it. I mean we have so much like firm ground to stand on to know that this is like legitimate prophecy so there's this large portion of Daniel 11 that talks about gets into all the nitty-gritty details talks about the strife and conflict that will happen between these four Greek kingdoms but I want to fast forward to this central character of chapter 11 um, that Daniel starts talking about in verse 30, and we've mentioned him before, um, but Daniel talks specifically about him, and I think it's important for us to see this and then see what, what happens. There's another pivot that happens after Daniel talks about this character, and he, we see him referred to in verse 27. He's called the king of the north, and it says his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and this is what it, we're going to start in verse 30. It says, at the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. He will then turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, for though for a time they, they will fall by the sword and be burned or captured or, or plundered, when they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. So there's a historic person here, and then we're going to see there's a bigger story going on. But the historic person is, is this person who battles against the Lord, who desecrates the temple, who abolishes the sacrifice of the Jewish people, who corrupts some and others resist. And, and, and the historical character matching that description is this Greek general named Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to Jerusalem about 200 years before Jesus, and he's historically significant. 
He's historically significant for us to understand because he invaded Jerusalem. He rode in on a horse in 167 BC and he desecrated the temple by taking a pig, which you know would be offensive to Jews, sacrificing it on the altar of the temple and, um, it, and to, to the god Zeus. So when it talks about temple desecration, here we have this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, using the Jewish temple to make a sacrifice to a pagan god. He goes, he, he, he slaughters people. Um, he he uh, what basically westernizes the, the Jewish people during his reign. Um, and we hear about this, not in the Bible, but in, hi, in a historical account uh, called Maccabees. Um, we, we hear about him, and, and, and this is a quote from that book. Remember, this is a historical account. It's not the Bible, but it says, He shed much blood and spoke with great arrogance. Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint, and the beauty of women faded. It's like he's just a bad dude. This guy is just a bad dude. He wreaked havoc on the Jewish people. This is actually what led to the Maccabean Revolt, and, and why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah today, that whole story, uh, came out of this. What, is, what we might not realize if we don't know about this guy is how profound Jesus is in comparison. Because while this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, rode into Jerusalem on a horse, went to the temple, sacrificed a pig, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to surrender himself as a sacrifice for the world. So the imagery that of Jesus getting a donkey, hum, humbly coming before offering himself, is ironic compared to this story. And that's why it's important we know this story. Um, so as the prophecy in Daniel continues, though, the scope widens. And you have to wonder, it can't all be about this Greek general, can it? Because this is what it says in verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath. For what has been determined must take place. He will have no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor he will regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make, the, the rulers over, make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. So this character now is kind of like widening. The scope's widening, and I think some of it can apply to Antiochus Epiphanes, certainly the wars in the Middle East and things like that. But, you know, he exalts himself above every god. He says unheard of things against God. We're starting to get into a new level here. Um, and then look what it says starting in verse 1145. It says, He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of the nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. You've heard that in Revelation, the book of life. 
Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. We're clearly not talking about this, this Greek general at this point. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those, who, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. So time out. All of a sudden we went from this Greek general to the end of the world, which we haven't seen yet, right? I mean, when we talk about the dust of the earth awaking, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. We're, we're talking about the end of the world. We're talking about the white throne judgment. So there's a couple different things going on here. This is more than about one general. This is like eternal judgment stuff. This is like the sovereignty of God over all time, all creation stuff. Armageddon, end of it all. Michael, the angel, is known as sort of like the protective general of God's people in the Bible. And what we have, we see an unprecedented time of suffering. So the connection, it seems to be talking about two different things at once. There, there was a, a travesty that happened in 167 B.C., but there's also something coming that's going to be even bigger and harder. And what we know is this, is the Bible is not an incomplete book. The Bible starts at the beginning of creation, and it ends at the consummation of God and his people, at, at, at the wedding between God and his people. And we're not at the end. We're in what is called the last days. And I want you to know it's not the last days starting in year 1900. <laughs> This is the last day starting with the apostles. Like for 2,000 years, we've been in this thing called the last days. Um, and what is represented here is this character Antiochus Epiphanes. There's actually this bigger archetype in scripture called the Antichrist that you may have heard of, right? Some people, some Christian circles like to guess about modern day, uh, you know, presidents or billionaires that could be the Antichrist. Um, <laughs> That's not what we're talking about, because uh, those guesses usually prove to be wrong, by the way. Um, but what Scripture teaches is that the, an the Antichrist is a category. It's a category. Um, look at what it says in 1 John 2, 18. This is the Apostle John talking to the church. And he says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now... This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained in us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. That's wordy. But if you get back to who Satan is, at his core, he's a deceiver and accuser. And a liar, yes. And so... Um, the, you know, an antichrist figure, and I think it does point forward to like a, like a, like a final antichrist, but like it basically is, is saying that this, this person or this type of leader person is someone who accuses and deceives, deceives God's people. And he says many antichrists have already come, right? So we might be pointing out like cult leaders or things like that as like, hey, these are people who deceived many, led them astray. Um, we can see those kind of movements throughout history. 
And even in, notice in John's writing, he's saying this is the last hour. So we're still there, you know, 2,000 years later, right? So, so the, the, the end times is not something that has developed within the last 50 years. We've been sitting in it for a long time as a church, 2,000 years. The, peop, the, church, the church John was writing to in his day thought the end was coming in their time. So what does this mean? Well, we've got to be on guard that we don't follow any human authority other than Jesus implicitly, right? Like the only true leader in our lives must be Christ. That we can't place anybody else on the throne or come to the defense of any imperfect human leader. Because they're going to lead you right off a cliff. What we can know is this, that the end of the world will come that it will be a dark and intense time, that there will be suffering. What are we supposed to do about it? I want to propose that we don't do one thing, speculate. That we don't speculate when it's coming or what it's going to look like. Because even Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour except God the Father. So our speculation just sends us in circles, right? And, and keeps us, it can be a distraction from keeping us from what God actually wants us to do in our time that we have. Because the people who have speculated have given years and days, guess what, they've always been wrong, 100% of the time. So let's not waste our time speculating, but let's press into what does God want from us? Let's, let's recognize, yeah, it's the, end, the, it's the last days, but what does God want from us now? What do we need to do? And I want to look at what the angel tells Daniel. I love, first I love Daniel's statement. You know, he says, he says this, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. So if you are like, what is going on this morning? You're in good company because Daniel got this vision and doesn't get what's going on. So be encouraged. I heard, but I didn't understand. So I asked, Lord, what will the outcome of this be? Asking the thing to do when you don't understand what's going on, by the way. So he asked the angel, well, what's the outcome of all this? Look at what the angel says uh, in verse 8. He says, go, he replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. He goes on and says this. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. I have no answers for you on that this morning. <laughs> Not going there. No clue. Like I said, I'm anti-speculation. Um, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So Daniel's like, okay, what does it mean? What, what's going to happen? What's the outcome? You know, he's in his time, he's thinking, are my people going to be restored? You know, I'm, are my people going to be okay? And what does the angel said? He says, go your way. Go your way. Like, kind of like a mosey along. You know, just keep moving, Daniel. Just keep moving. Keep going. Keep moseying. You're doing great. Don't worry, at the time of the end, you'll rise again, and, 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 and you'll be with God, 
You know, that's what he's saying. He's like, just trust that the words are sealed. You don't need to know everything. We gave you way too much for you to understand, but just, just keep moseying. Just keep moseying. So um, I think what he's saying is don't get stuck on it, right? Don't get stuck on the end. Keep on the path God has for you. What does it mean for us to keep moving, to keep moseying? Um, what does that mean? Well, we, we've received a calling from Jesus to live out in our time and our place. We're in the age of the church. We've been commissioned by Jesus. Uh, we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit um, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the world and to, 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 love, um, to love people no matter what, um, to reach out to the, the poor, the lost, the lonely, the broken. Like, God, Jesus has given us enough to do. And so <laughs> I think what he's saying is do what I've called you to do really, really well. Keep on the mission that you've been given. Because what do we see? I mean, what's the picture? That the mission that we do right now, that we participate in, that we take seriously, that's what makes the difference in the end. The last few weeks, I've come back to this idea it talks about in Scripture, about at the, end of, at the end of time, like our work will be burned up and only what's pure will remain. I've really been thinking about that. I've really been thinking, like, God, what, what am I doing that's pure and what am I doing that's just kind of like chaff? That's just going to kind of burn up? Maybe that's something to think about. But the mission that we're on um, makes all the difference in the end. Like, like, we can read this again. Many will be purified, made spotless, refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. There, there is a um, bifurcation coming at the end. A judgment of God. And we need to be motivated by sharing the good news of Christ with the world. And that's what I'm seeing. I mean, if we want to make any difference, like, we've got to do the work that Jesus called us to do so more and more people can know about Christ and be made righteous through him. So what to consider before we get hung up on how things will happen at the end? How are you preparing for it? Who are you investing in? Who are you reaching out to? That's the pressing question. That's the real question. That's what's going to matter. What's going to matter when you're at the end is not, did I get it right? Did I win the guessing game? But who did I reach out to? Who's here with me in the end? And that's what's clear in Daniel, and that's what's clear in Revelation, is that there is an end coming, but God's given us the now to do something about it. The now is the time to do something about it, to get serious about what Christ wants us to, to be about to live lives for him. So while looking at the end should drive us towards this work that God has for us, I wanted to end with this encouragement because this whole time we've been talking about faith. This whole time we've been talking about living in certainty. And so when chaos reigns around us, what can we do? How can we have a resilient faith even in chaos? And here's the encouragement this morning. Daniel's vision is an exclamation point declaring that God is in control. If you, if you look at what was laid forth, I think one thing that you need to realize is that God is in control even of history. He's in control of what happens. We know that Jesus wins in the end. Like that is important for us because that's what we hang our hat on. 
God isn't going to fade away. God isn't going to shrink. God is in control of all of history. And he's in control of your future as well. And he's written this story. Even in the Old Testament, we get a picture of the end. And, and there's no room for edits. There's no alternate ending we need to worry about. Like, God's in control. God's in control. We just need to worry about where we're building our house, right? Building our house on the rock, like we talked about before. Because God's sovereign, we just need to get on the same page as him. So, I don't know about you, but just as we wrap up this morning, I know for me, that's a, that's a reminder that I need constantly. God is in control of my now. He's in control of my future. He's in control of my kids' future. He's in control of this church. Like, that's what I need to know, right? So that I can go my way, so that I can mosey along, so that I can keep doing the things he's called me to do. Because as soon as I focus, like, just like Peter in the waves, as soon as I focus on figuring out what's going on, I'm lost and I'm sinking. And I need Jesus to pull me up out of the water, (laughs) which happens a lot. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, thanks. Yeah, that's good. All right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a good swimmer, but I don't know about the Sea of Galilee. Um, Yeah, and that's that getting back to getting back to faith. You might be in a season right now where you're doubting the certainty of God or you've placed your certainty in a job that didn't work out or in a relationship that's struggling or whatever it is. And Jesus would invite you this morning to embrace the certainty that only God can provide. Only God can provide certainty in your life. Um, and that's why he gives us the picture of the end. Because if, if we didn't have a picture of the end, we, would, we would feel like we're headed off a cliff, right? Why do you think God lets us in on the end? So that we can be encouraged and so that we can hang on even when things are tough, knowing that he's in control. And so I just want to encourage you today to invite Invite God into the places where you feel uncertain, right? Invite God into your uncertainty, uh, and we're going to pray, and the worship team's going to come up and do that. And I just want to, you know, one thing about, you know, we talked about the Antichrist and deception and all those things. Um, remember Satan's lie in the garden is, did God really say? Know that the enemy wants to sow seeds of doubt in your faith constantly. So I want to pray against that as well. Lord, I pray that you would just make us a people full of faith. Uh, Lord, that you would help us to walk in certainty. Lord, that you'd help us to build our homes on the rock of Christ and not on the shaky ground, not on the things we think will give us joy and happiness and stability, but on you. And when we're facing difficult seasons, when we're facing uncertainty over whatever it is, God, whether it be our jobs, our family, our health, our kids, whatever it is, Lord, we pray that we could just lean into the only place we can find certainty, which is you, which is in your will, God. Lord, we might feel overwhelmed. We might be talking about mission and sharing our faith with others and feel completely at a loss because we're already over it. We're already at the brim of what we can handle Lord, reform our lives so that we can live 
intentionally, not reactively, not in a state of, of frantic chaos, but that we can mosey, that we can walk like Jesus walked. Lord, invite us into that this morning, God. Lord, speak to our doubts, whatever, wherever they're at, whether we are questioning about the God thing, um, whether we are doubting in the goodness of God, the love of God, you name it, Lord. We invite your spirit to speak to those places this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.